from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio at the Gas South Convention Center in Duluth, Georgia. Welcome to Celebrating Powerhouse Women, proudly presented by NEMA and Sourced. And welcome back, friends, to Celebrating Powerhouse Women, the series that salutes and recognizes women leaders making an impact in our community. I am your host, Amanda Pierce Marmalejo, and it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Kim Sivens. She is the office managing partner for the Atlanta office of Harrison LLP. Welcome to the show, Kim. Thank you. I really appreciate your having me. Well, the rain didn't stop us from getting together today. I know you had to drive from the city, so I appreciate you braving the weather and us um, losing our hairdos before we got in here in, in order for us to get together. Um, for those listening who have no idea what Harrison LLP is, give us an idea. Sure. I always love to talk about my law firm, um, Harrison. Uh, we are a firm that is focused on private wealth. So for the most part, our clients are families and families who are thinking about a lot of things about how their wealth intersects with their family. So, of course, you can imagine that estate planning is a big piece of that, but it can affect other things, such as, um, as you think about divorce. Divorce can also affect your family and your money. Um, there can be certain situations in families. For instance, if there's a family with a special needs child, there would be special planning done for a child with special needs mm. that you would want to do for that family member. So there are many aspects of wealth and family, but that is the intersection of, of what my law firm pays attention to. And of course, as you can imagine, when we're talking about money, taxes becomes a big issue. Mm. And so a lot of us at the firm are also tax attorneys. And that's one of the things I do. And, and different lawyers in our firm do different things. I'm an estate planner and I work in the trust world. Um, but other lawyers do work in divorce or other lawyers work more in income tax or, or any place where there is that cross-section of wealth and family. I have to ask you, because this is a world that I know minimal about, um, but I think that I'm receiving messaging from the universe that is something I should start thinking about. Uh, rounding 40 parents, mid-60s, um, just starting to have that conversation would be beneficial. I imagine that could also be awkward. How do you kind of breach that, that conversation or kind of segue into that because of um, the touchy subject? Right, that's interesting. And every client is different. But I will tell you this, once we get an attorney with a client. So once I am talking with my clients, it's amazing how quickly that the veil goes up and it's a relief for my clients to be able to talk. But I don't think that necessarily was your question. It was, you know, the attorney client tends to be very open and honest because there's some feeling of safety in that confidential relationship. But I think you're also talking about among family members and how do families themselves handle that kind of awkward conversation. Yeah. And um, I can't tell you how many times I've had younger clients, in my mind, younger is maybe even middle age, <clears throat> who've said they have no idea how much money their, their parents have. And their parents are maybe in their 80s. And they have no idea because their parents have never shared that. Um, as your parents get older, it becomes more important to understand what their wealth looks like. Because also you want to start to be protective. Because as cognitive decline happens with your parents, you want to make sure you're protective of them. 
So with my older clients, which is the majority of my clients, are already probably retired or thinking about retirement or older, I am usually very encouraging of them to start to open up and talk with their children about the wealth and perhaps prepare their children for wealth. And sometimes maybe my clients have lived a very wealthy lifestyle and maybe there's not as much wealth as their children might be expecting. And it's better to not have a shock later down the road. So I will say those conversations among family members are touchy. And sometimes we as lawyers will be a part of a family meeting to help kind of facilitate that discussion about expectations, about the structure of your wealth, and about what those kids or grandchildren can expect down the road. I would say preparation is definitely the key because you don't want to be saddled with having to give your attention to any one of the things that you mentioned very last minute. So That's right, because you can imagine if someone's received a a bad diagnosis or is trying to to scurry and get their affairs in order is what the physicians I understand tell scurry their, yes tell their clients is is maybe you better get your affairs in order when that emotional weight is on someone and they're facing their their death is not necessarily the best time no you want to do it ahead of that you mentioned earlier to me, um, and I'll share with our listeners, that you're a Georgia Tech graduate. That's right. And so I assume that's where you got your law degree, correct? Actually, Georgia Tech doesn't have a law school. Where yeah. did you get your law degree? I got my law degree at Georgia State. Georgia State. That's okay. right. And um, there's actually not very many Georgia Tech grads that go to law school because there's not a law school at Georgia Tech. And most of the Georgia Tech alumni who are lawyers are going to be more in the patent law space because they're engineers or computer savvy, Mm -hmm. and they're going to be more in patent law. And um, I don't think there are other Georgia Tech lawyers out there who have obviously gone somewhere else for law school that do estate planning that I know of. I could be wrong on that. Well, so I might be a unicorn. (laughs) If you're listening and you fall into that category, connect with Kim because she'd like to meet another. Exactly. Um, Where I was going with that, Kim, is uh, the passion behind what you do. You know, it's an interesting um, line of work. It's an interesting field of law to go into without there being any passion. So out of curiosity, what was the driving force to kind of lead you down that path? Well, it was interesting. When I went to law school, I thought that this was the area I wanted to go into. And what was enticing to me was the idea of a family kind of um, opening the door, letting me in to understand the dynamics of that family, how what makes that family tick, how are the interrelationships, but also the wealth of that family, which kind of greases the wheels, mm-hmm. so to speak. And to be able to get a glimpse of what people sometimes kind of hide behind, people aren't comfortable talking, of course, about their wealth or perhaps family dysfunction, that sometimes that could be addiction or other issues that are happening in a family. But to get a glimpse of that, and then I have to admit, I have what's called white knight syndrome, is I like to come in and save the day. And to have the opportunity to help a family in preparing, or sometimes it's after they've lost a loved one during the estate administration process, to kind of come in and know, I know exactly kind of usually what to do next, Mm -hmm. and to kind of help that family through that, and to give maybe peace of mind on on the planning side, or to at least understand what happens next when there's an estate administration. Um, That is what was um, compelling to me, is to kind of be able to be the one who solves a problem, 
and it solves a problem that is usually for a family, one of the most critical things that's on their mind is their family and their wealth. You use the word trust several times in a variety of ways. One, that you are an overseer of trusts uh, within your organization. But I'd like to take that out of that context and talk about the word trust as a whole. You were mentioning there is a great degree of trust between you and your clients. How do you kind of establish that? Uh, obviously, your firm is well established, but that trust right there is something that you have to establish first and foremost to gain their business. So just talk a little bit about trust and how it, it is involved in your everyday. Sure. Well, as a young lawyer, and I worked for some fantastic mentor lawyers who were very seasoned, and they had some existing relationships. They had networked, and um, as you can imagine, when a, when a wealthy family comes in our door, they usually come already having a financial advisor, probably a CPA that's already working with them. Um, usually in the lifespan of a client, they get to estate planning next. It's usually, of course, they're doing tax compliance, so they have a CPA. Once they have enough assets, they have investments, so they have an investment advisor. But the lawyer is usually the third one on the scene. But when we come on the scene, we've usually been referred by a CPA or an investment advisor. So when I was a young lawyer, I would start working on clients that were technically the clients of my mentor. And I would get to know these CPAs and these investment advisors who were also working on the same clients I was working on. And we were collaborating to do the best result for our clients. And it's the, those touch points and those networking, when, those, when that CPA talks to their next client who needs some estate planning, they might think of me. Mm -hmm. It's because I first established trust with those other advisors. So I've established trust with CPAs and I've established trust with investment advisors, or maybe even um, a life insurance professional. And then that trust carries over when they refer their client to me. You know, that client knows that, that their investment advisor has already worked with Kim on another client and already has established that trust, right. and I end up being the beneficiary of their existing trust, trust with their other advisor. And that is the best way that I actually get new clients, is through referrals from my network of mostly CPAs and investment advisors, sometimes bankers, who I've already worked with before. Um, and that those referrals go both ways. Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes I'm in a client situation where my client needs to make a change with their CPA or an investment advisor. And who do I think of first? I think of the ones that I've worked with, with other clients that I think may be a good fit and had success in the past. That is so important, the, the referral network. I'm sure everybody, any professional can attest to the power of referrals. Rewinding a little bit, you mentioned networking and the power of your network, specifically that of CPAs and investment, uh, possible bankers, et cetera. What networking groups do you find value in and where do you go to seek connection that would be um, a complement to your business? In my world, which it's a shorthand we call estate planning world, but that means a lot more things. And sometimes there's a charitable component to that. There is a group in Atlanta um, called the Atlanta Estate Planning Council, which would be is a perfect type of, of organization for someone like me. So it's very almost practice specific, but it's not just lawyers like me. It is those CPAs. 
It is those bankers or trust officers. Um, it can be investment people, but also people who have the types of clients that I have. And there's about 350 members of the Atlanta Estate Planning Council from all of those different disciplines, but all coming together to share information, to share knowledge, to share friendships with each other, and really kind of make sure that we can service our clients in the best way. There are other estate planning networks like that. Um, I know that I think there's a estate planning of North Georgia. Mm. So there are estate planning groups of professionals. And that's one of, one of the best ways to, to do that. Um, also, there's advisor networks um, that are similar, but also specific to certain charitable organizations. So for instance, Children's Healthcare, we all know with Scottish Rite mm -hmm. and Eggleston here in Atlanta, um, also kind of fosters a group of, of the same type of professionals to kind of make sure that they are collegial, understand what is going on in the world of estate planning, but also where that cross-section is with philanthropy. Mm -hmm. and, and CHOA, Children's Healthcare, mm -hmm. is very good about providing content and meaningful experiences that not just focus on CHOA, but could focus on other charities in Atlanta to make sure we're always kind of thinking about the philanthropic aspect to estate planning. The Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta is another example of an organization that kind of fosters estate planning professionals with philanthropy mm -hmm. to kind of help us stay up to date and up to snuff on how to um, really represent our clients who want to participate very actively in philanthropy. Well, that brings me to my next point, Kim. You're just doing all the heavy lifting for me. Um, I'd love for you to tell us about your involvement with the Norcross Cooperative Ministries. Yeah. Um, that's an organization. I've lived in Norcross for, um, wow, 22 years now. Um, it's a wonderful place to live. And um, it is an area of Gwinnett County that struggles a little bit with some some poverty. We, more so than maybe, maybe some other areas of Gwinnett County, that I-85 corridor tends to be an area that is challenged with family poverty. Usually that the, the reason for that is, is that the number of extended stay hotels, which are along the I-85 corridor, which of course are that, um, it's, it's kind of a, a, a place for, for families to go maybe who are on the edge of homelessness. Mm -hmm. Um, the Norcross Cooperative Ministry, um, also known as the Neighborhood Cooperative Ministries, services western Gwinnett County and helps families in crisis. So we're trying to prevent families from becoming homeless, mm -hmm. sometimes with rental assistance, um, sometimes with utilities assistance. Um, also provides a food pantry and clothes closet and health care assistance. So kind of any type of crisis that happens in western Gwinnett County, which is primarily that Norcross zip codes, um, as well as maybe going into the Peachtree Corners area. Um, I, I recently joined the board, but I had known about that organization for a long time. And that has been an area um, that has been fun to, to roll up my sleeves and get a little more in depth, but also to kind of use my professional expertise to help them. Mm. One of the things we've done in the last year is establish a planned giving program for the ministry so that we can help our donors think about death time planning, mm -hmm. or sometimes that may be the most advantageous income tax planning, because we all know we get tax deductions for making charitable gifts. Um, so sometimes it's there's more to it than just writing a check. Mm. There's sometimes other things to consider, such as the type of gift 
Um, for instance, if somebody has appreciated stock, that can be very beneficial to give to a charity in lieu of cash um, because um, the income taxes you would have paid had you sold the stock, um, you don't have to pay and you still get the charitable deduction. And of course, the charity can receive that stock and they're tax exempt. They never pay the tax. It's beautiful. Right. So it's a beautiful method of maximizing a gift mm -hmm. and reducing taxes. And there's different little techniques at different chapters in someone's life to kind of pay attention to when you think about charitable gifting in a significant amount. So that's one of the things I've helped them do is establish that program and messaging and how do we kind of think about planned giving, which is for any charity bequests, mm. but also some, you know, some lifetime giving. Maximize your give is what you said. I really that's love right. that mentality. Maximize your give. Uh, Amanda Pierce Marmalejo here with you on Celebrating Powerhouse Women and joined in studio today by Kim Sivens. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to dive into Kim's personal life. All right. NEMA is a full-service logistics company that provides trucking, warehousing, and expedited deliveries for the paper machine clothing industry. They offer a full line of services, including delivery within the 48 contiguous states, Canada and Mexico, plus importing and exporting, air freight forwarding services, foreign trade zone warehousing, and many more services to handle your global logistics needs. NEMA is a proud sponsor of the Celebrating Powerhouse Women podcast series. We know running a business is hard. There are so many things that need to get done and you don't have the time, the resources, the experience, or you just don't want to do it yourself. At Sourced, we have your back. Office. We support leaders of companies with all their back office challenges that weigh them down. Whether it's accounting, talent acquisition, administrative support, marketing or human resources, our team of experts at Sourced will make your life easy and your back office effortless. To see how we can help you, check us out at GetSourced.com. And welcome back, folks, to Celebrating Powerhouse Women. Kim and I were just having a, a nice a mutual smile as we listened to that commercial, as we want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Gabrielle with Sourced. Coming back to our conversation, Kim, I'd love for you just to share with our listeners, um, you know, your road to uh, getting to where you're at today. So take me back to where you grew up and, and we'll kind of go from there. Sure. Um, I grew up in Cleveland, Georgia. So in North Georgia, gateway to the mountains. Graduated from White County High School. Thought I wanted to be an architect. So I went to Georgia Tech where there was the, the closest architecture school. I have to tell you that architecture thought um, once I was really in it, didn't last very long. I opted out of that, but didn't know what to do at the moment. At that moment, so I stayed at Georgia Tech and, and pursued ma a management degree, which was the Georgia Tech version of a business degree. So I, I graduated Georgia Tech in '92. That was during a recession, and it was tough to get jobs. A lot of my classmates weren't getting jobs. I uh, I had a six month stint, though I, I thought I was very lucky at the time. I had a six month stint at Anderson Consulting, doing. They trained me to be a COBOL programmer, which is some kind of archaic programming language now. And I, and I look back on that and I, what I'm doing now is so different from being a computer programmer. Um, but you can tell that that didn't last very long. So I, I ended up getting a job as a receptionist at a sports marketing company called ProServe. And my parents thought I absolutely lost it. Um, here I was 22 years old, right out of college, had a good job at a consulting company. And I quit for $5 an hour 
receptionist at a sports marketing company. But that didn't last long. I got um, someone left that firm, and I got pulled back from the receptionist desk. Um, that firm ran the AT&T Challenge, which was a large tennis tournament hosted here in Atlanta for many years. And I got pulled back off the receptionist desk because the ticketing manager left with about three minute, three months left to go before the tournament. And I got thrown into running all the ticketing for that event. So, so I got thrown in the deep end of the pool and I started swimming as fast as I could and I, and I learned that. And I ended up being with that company for seven years working in the sports world. And I, I ended up managing the AT&T Challenge um, which was an ATP tennis event. We we used to host Andre Agassi, Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Jim Courier. It was so much fun. Um, Brooke Shields was even dating Andre Agassi at the time, so she would come around. It was a lot of fun. It was a great job to have in my 20s. I even traveled a bit for that company and, and ran pro beach volleyball events before pro beach volleyball was a thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I ran events at Disney World and in Daytona and in Cincinnati and was just having the time of my life in my 20s. Mm-hmm. As you should. As we should, mm-hmm. as everyone should in their 20s. Travel, but I was making hardly any money. And I had gone to Georgia Tech, and I had a scratch in my brain, that, that um, an itch that needed scratching. scratching. Yep. As far as um, I kind of got to the point where I needed to do something a little more challenging. And that's actually when I first started thinking about law school. So it's not something I was thinking about before college. It was not something I was thinking about during college. It was something I thought about later in life. And by that point, I was married. And my husband supported me through law school at Georgia State. And I ended up getting a job at a big law firm um, out of law school, doing trust and estates work for those mentors that I explained. Um, I was in a law firm that um, had offices throughout the world. So it was a huge law firm, with many different areas of law. And I was within that trust and estates practice group and I was learning and I was working on some of the most complicated projects and it was great training ground and then just about three years ago I left that firm and I ended up with Harrison and Harrison is what you would call a boutique law firm because we only work in the private wealth space Mm -hmm. and our, our headquarters is in Chicago and I was delighted to be able to with my team open the Atlanta office of Harrison and we started with four lawyers three years ago, and today we're at 14 lawyers in the Atlanta office. So that growth has been tremendous, and it's because we're, we, our firm is something different. Mm-hmm. It is a, a national firm, but with a very limited focus on working with our families and working with family wealth. Um, we also work with trustees and executors and trying to help them manage trusts um, or manage estates. And when I think about using the word wealth, the, the word wealth to me doesn't mean a, an objective number. Um, you know, I think lots of people know what wealthy means to them. It's a very relative term. But wealth to me is just, you know, what, you know, it's, it's maybe not even financial. It's also your values and, your, and the way you feel about things. And how do you pass all of this along? You know, we are looking at the baby boomers um, getting older and the largest wealth transition, um, it's, they've largely said how the trillions of dollars that will be transferred among generations in the next few years, maybe 10 to 20 years. 
it's going to be mammoth, the amount of wealth that is transferred. And so, you know, assisting those families in doing that in, in a tax-efficient way, in a way that works for their family and is protective of their family, um, you know, that's, that's what we do. It's funny you mentioned that because I just heard something, I think it was on TikTok or something scrollable, and it made reference to that exact thing that you shared, the mammoth of the wealth transition or transfer, excuse me. Isn't that interesting to, to just know that that body of, of people has that much financial power or control? I mean, Obviously, they acquired it. You know, these are my parents that we're talking about. So mm -hmm. I'm very well, me, maybe one of these uh, beneficiaries of transition. <laughs> we would hope so. You better but be nice to them. Be nice <laughs> to them. Well, we have that the conversation. We have to start that yeah. conversation. Um, but it is very interesting to me to uh, understand that a generation could make or break the financial USA, essentially, not just USA. Right, but. exactly. And the tax, the tax component of that is something not to ignore. Um, now, you have to be pretty wealthy to cause what's called an estate tax. Um, it's a moving target because Congress cannot really pin down anything. But um, what our listeners should know is that there's an estate tax of 40% of wow. your wealth. Now, there are exemptions. It only hits certain people that have certain amounts of wealth. But a 40%, what some people call death tax, mm -hmm. is pretty significant. Yeah. And if you don't plan for that, and there's things you can do to, to try to reduce that tax, but it takes time and it takes sometimes some complexity. But if that's something that would bother you to think about at death, that your beneficiaries may have to take that kind of tax hit, mm. then it's something that you need to pay attention to. Now, I'll tell you that, that the exemption amount Right now, mm -hmm. if something pa if someone passed away this year, the exemption amount is thirteen point six one million. Wow! So only the the amount above that is taxed. But of course, that doesn't hit very many people. No. But in twenty twenty six, that exemption amount goes down. Under current law, it is scheduled to go down to about seven, or we're guessing seven or seven and a half million. It's an inflation adjusted number. Mm. So that is, is set to happen in 2026. And all of a sudden, that's going to affect a lot more people. I'll say. And I'll also say that we need to watch our elections and watch the politics because this is a political hot potato in Congress. And we don't know what those exemptions will be in the future. So estate taxes, while it doesn't affect many people, it does affect those that it affects in, in a large way. In a large way, yeah. 40% yeah. is a pretty pretty steep slope, I will say. That's right. I think I could talk to you about estate planning all day. And I think our listeners are just, you know, enriched with your knowledge. I would like to um, ask you a couple things, if I may. So throughout building your business and congratulations on your launch here in Atlanta only three years ago and uh, growing all the way up to 14 lawyers, experiencing that type of growth in a short period of time, and let alone launching that uh, arm here in the Atlanta area, I'd love for you to share with us your experience. Yeah. So in some ways, it's been one of the best things I've ever done. Um, I'm, I'm entrepreneurial at heart, and my colleagues are the same way. Um, we're enjoying kind of starting something, making it our own, and doing that alongside our, our colleagues in other offices of Harrison. I will say that it hasn't necessarily been easy. Um, starting something new um, is, is challenging, and we did that starting in 2021. Oh, which, pandemic. Yes, exactly. Uh, the C word, which we, we'll, we won't talk about. But it was a challenging time. Um, 
we also um, had, it was challenging finding support staff at that time. I don't know if, if, our, if our listeners can roll their heads back to that time and think about how challenging it was, the job market. Um, it was just very difficult to find the right kind of support staff. And of course, as a law firm, we need assistance. We need paralegals. I mean, that we need, we need help to be able to produce work um, and produce projects for our clients. And that was particularly challenging. I will tell you that our mutual friend Gabrielle helped us with that. Um, she, she was a good resource to us to help us build out our office with some personnel. So you got to, again, look at the network, but it was challenging to kind of bring the right people on board. And then um, our law firm is so unique that then we almost immediately, without even trying, started to attract other lawyers uh-huh. um, just by knowing people out there in, in our area. And there were some opportunities there we could not say no to um, with just some wonderful talent that we knew could service our clients and more help us serve our clients more robustly by offering different areas of practice. And um, so we grew kind of in spite of ourselves. And um, so now we're out of space. And so we now found- we're looking for office space. Now we're looking for office space. We did, we did secure some new office space. We're not in it yet. It's being built out for us. But you can tell that you know, we do very much feel like a startup, but we're also very excited about that because we're absolutely able to create and curate this office the way we want it to be to service our clients. We're also very female heavy in our Atlanta office um, and also have several lawyers of color. And we're very proud of that. And and we love the fact that um, we probably, if you saw a picture of of our law firm, we look a little different than maybe some other law firms. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're very proud of that. Well, you had mentioned something before uh, about your firm and that you guys kind of set yourself apart from the rest. Now, I'd like to take that phrase, but out of the context of your firm. And I'd like to ask you, Kim, how do you set yourself apart from the rest? Maybe in your field, maybe just, you know, from all these, there's a dental conference going on here at Gasol Convention Center. How would you set yourself apart from standing in that room with all the dental professionals (laughs) that don't know that you're not a dentist? (laughs) That's right. Well, one of the things I've had to learn to do, and, and several of, of other mentors have helped me along with this, is, is always be my authentic self. Um, don't try to be what my clients want me to be. Don't try to be what my friends want me to be. I don't need to try to work hard to be something I think you might want me to be, Amanda, right? Um, I just need to be who I am. And the people who like and respect me for that will find me. Mm-hmm. And I have found that to be true. I do sometimes see others maybe still trying to be something they're not. You can kind of tell, right? You can tell when someone's kind of being inauthentic. But that's something I'm really comfortable with now of just being myself. And I don't know if that sets me apart, but I do know that definitely provides a way to be a little more comfortable and confident. Because if all I can be is who I am, and I'll try to be the best self I can be, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to try to be something I'm not. So I love that, Kim. So we didn't even get a chance to talk about your family. We kind of glazed over that. I do just want to give you a chance maybe to talk about what it was like. You mentioned that you were with, uh, you were married to your husband already and you were accomplishing your law degree. So I can only imagine what it was like juggling all of those balls at one time. And then cue motherhood as you are the proud mom of two. Take me through that time in your life. Yeah. So um, there was one year overlap where I have to say there, there are times when I like to stick my toe in the pool and see what the temperature looks like. And that was kind of law school for me. I, I stayed with my job with the sports marketing company, and I, I stuck my toe in the water and went to law school at night. 
So I could see how that would go. Um, so I worked and law school, which was the hardest time in my life. And, and I was married at that point. And my husband was, was working in television at Turner. And um, he was traveling a lot to cover sports teams. And very grateful for all the support he gave me while I was working hard to do all my studying while he was traveling so that maybe we could have a day here and there when he happened to be home and maybe I didn't have to work and maybe things would line up. Um, that was a tough time, but we didn't have kids at that point. So, you know, that made it a little easier because I'll tell you, there were other students at Georgia State College of Law that were doing what I was doing. They, they had jobs, they were going to evening classes and they had families, wow. you know, they had children. Um, and I even used to see women pumping yes. in the in the bathroom <laughs> was the only place they could do it um, during breaks at for evening classes. I was fortunate in that I didn't have kids yet at that time. So, you know, when I graduated law school um, and then I went to work in what we call big law, a big law firm, um, that was the time when I when I had my two girls. So Allison is 16 and even just this morning, she drove to school all by herself. Oh, oh my well, with her sister. Time? Yeah, so it's oh. the first time that she just got her license this week. So she drove herself without an adult, just her little sister, in the car to school. And I in the rain. In the rain, <laughs> and I did use the the, the Find My app to, to monitor her all the way to there, school yeah. till I saw her in the parking lot. Um, so I have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old, and they, um, they're doing great. They're, they're students at Greater Atlanta Christian School, and, and they're, doing, they're doing fantastic. But I will say that balancing um, you know, a full-time job, especially in the law profession, and raising little ones isn't easy, and I would never have been able to do it if my husband hadn't actually taken the step um, at one point to become a stay-at-home dad. Wow. Yeah. That's trending these days. Tell me I about that, that experience. <laughs> he's a pioneer. <laughs> um, he's been doing that, I guess, for about, I'm, I'm just kind of guessing, about 12 years now. And my mother um, helped along those early days, too. But without my mom and, of course, without my husband, who, um, who put aside his career to really kind of be the one to – do the ballet buns to take <laughs> to to take the kid. He had to learn to. He went on YouTube. I don't know what they would have done in the old days. Oh yeah, but ballet buns, um, driving kids around, um, and and helping. Um, I mean, he does the grocery shopping and he does most of the cooking. I mean, I'm just so fortunate that we are able to do that. Um, frankly, he was better qualified to be the one to stay at home anyway. Um, so he's much more of a of a good doer and tries to keep everything moving along mm -hmm. at home. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful to him that he was able to kind of make that easier for us. Mm -hmm. So your daughters are both 16 and 14. And a question I like to ask uh, on this show is, what would you have told your 30-year-old self if you could go back in time and tell yourself anything? And I'd love for you to answer that. But first, I'd like to ask you, what you would share with either one of your daughters, fast forwarding, let's pretend like they're 30. If you could give them, you know, a message that before you get there, girls, what would it be? Yeah. One of the things that, that it's kind of been my mantra um, for the girls is I would love for them to not ever be dependent on a spouse. Um, and that's kind of come about through my career. I, it's, I just, I've, I've watched families, you know, I've had the chance to see inside families 
and I see how frequent there is divorce. And we all know the statistics are raw. The raw statistics, you know, it's over 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I really want them to never be, and just just because I've seen this with other families, be trapped in a marriage because they don't feel like they can stand on their own. So one thing that's very important to me is I want to make sure they're independent and that they can stand on their own because then that empowers them to do make so many decisions in their life. So that's one thing that I've already started to try to get kind of in their inner psyche mm-hmm. is don't ever think that you're going to be dependent on some, the time to be dependent on someone is now yeah, on, <laughs> on your parents, on yes. your parents. Right. But later, you know, you can be in a really great marriage, but still know that you have the power to be independent if you need to be. All my independent women out there. That's right. Now my 30 year old self from a long time ago, um, since I'm well past 30 now, but um, you have the knowledge that you have now. I do have the knowledge that I have now. Um, one thing I would have done is, um, I had my first child at age 37 and my second at 38. I felt like I waited too long. Now, granted, when I was 30, I was actually in law school. That probably wouldn't have been the right time. But um, I know there, there really is a trend to kind of prolong uh, um, and wait to have children. And I was certainly a part of that. And, it, and there was really no reason for it other than that I just never felt like I was mature enough to, to do that. But I was wrong. I would have been ready earlier. And I, there was really no explanation for that. Um, I will say that once I did decide that maybe this was something we need, that we should do, my husband and I together decided that, we then even had a little trouble getting pregnant. And we did have to go through IVF. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's where we got to. So it wasn't as easy. And of course, that usually is attributed to, to age. But also just um, putting that aside, I think that... Ha- having done that younger might have been might have been better um, just because I wouldn't be so old now and have a 16 year old and a 14 year old would be one thing I was gonna ask you why and so you answered yeah. my question um, yeah I feel indifferent to that as I'm gonna be 38 here in a couple days and I have no children nor do I care to have any children but I do notice that a lot of women have children well into their 40s and I think it's just a matter of if you're think you're, you know your physical abilities like your financial abilities there is an upside to it because you're established in your career you're not I, I remember my parents had me in their early 20s and that was on a you know one airline salary and uh, a teacher you know but at the age that you had your children you could fully support the household and so it's really kind of turn of a coin, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know really what the perfect answer is. And maybe there isn't a perfect answer. Obviously a, a younger mom might've even had a, maybe I would have had more energy, you know, even just physically energy, right. For that, for children. Um, I am tired a lot, but now that they're older, it's getting better. But yeah, but you're right. I was a little more financially stable, a little more established in my career at that point by the time I had kids. So mm-hmm. I don't think there is a right answer. So it would be uh, maybe to have started a little bit earlier. Maybe. All right. Well, shout out to your 16-year-old who drove to school for the first time. Congratulations. What was her name? Allison. Allison. I know she's going to be a rock star, safe driver behind the wheel. And that Mm. will be a lot of help because now she can help with your younger daughter. That's right. That's right. 
Kim, if anybody is interested in learning more about what you said or possibly having a conversation with you, where could they best find you? Maybe on LinkedIn or would yep. you like to share I, other? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn. So certainly you could you could find me. I know my last name's a little unusual and people might be listening, but it's C-I-V-I-N-S. Just search for Kim. Of course, we do have a website. Our firm website is harrisonllp.com. And you'll, you'll find a lot of my colleagues there. And um, we have offices in several cities. We have offices in Naples, Las Vegas, St. Louis. Our headquarters is in Chicago. Um, and, and our strategic plan is to continue to grow. So, um, so look out. I think we, we truly are the first national estate planning law firm or private wealth law firm mm-hmm. um, with only a trajectory of, of continued growth. So that's become more important these days with families. You know, some of my families have a child in New York or have a child in Chicago or have a child in, in Denver. And um, to have be able to still help a family mm-hmm but have attorneys who are licensed in other states, states and practice yeah. law in other states is very helpful. And I will say the international component is a big deal. So many of our clients may have assets in other countries or they may be a citizen of another country with assets here. Mm-hmm. And the international component of estate planning is becoming more and more frequent. Um, from the, my for my 22-year career, I started off hardly ever dealing with international assets or international clients, and now I would say it's easily every week. So um, we actually have estate planners in our firm who all they do is international estate Amazing. planning work. Yep. That's great. I don't have any um, any money stashed away, you know, in, in another no, country. No so Swiss that bank would. account, Cayman <laughs> Islands, no. nothing. I'd have to okay. visit there first before I decided to place my money there. Good idea. Kim, I've enjoyed picking your brain. I do just want to pay homage to you as I'm looking at this long list of accomplishments of yours. And I'm very curious, and I'd like to say congratulations, as you are the Woman of the Year Rising Star Silver for City Wealth in 2021. And your firm was um, was this voted, um, I'm unfamiliar with the Best Lawyers in America. Is that a magazine or is that a... That's right. Best right. Lawyers in America from 2018 all the way up into 2023. Um, so you have an outstanding um, just accolade here. And what was the Woman of the Year Rising Star about? So that's definitely an international type of award. And I was very surprised by it. It's um, based by uh, or, or it's administered by a London-based organization. And when it first when I first kind of became notified of it, I, I didn't even really know what it was. But my colleague who does international work, I, I called her and I said, what? What what is this? She goes, oh, that's a that's a good one, and and it basically had had become um, my my touch points with lawyers in other countries, um, is particularly in the UK, which is kind of the center and the entry point for European um, European legal activities is London, you know, and and it kind of came about by my reputation there, so. That's that's how it all began. So you had no idea that you were being nominated? No idea. Oh, that's exciting. No idea. Yeah. Well, is it an award that is framed and hung somewhere on a wall? No, or I it's think it's... like online? I think it's an online oh, type man, of they award. Don't do that but I still was very proud of it. Because, you know, sometimes you hear about these things, you don't know if they're if they're legit. That's why I, I called Researched my... Researched f- Yeah, and it really was, and I was very honored. Now, I could have gone to the London Awards Gala. Oh. I, I did miss that. Yeah. So. Were they going to fly you out there? No, I mean, no. I was going to fly myself. <laughs> Kim, I warned you before the show, as we're coming to the end of our segment, I would love for you to share with our listeners some parting words or um, final thoughts. 
you know, I, I heard this from somebody else. I'm co-opting it from someone else. But that they talk about their career and they talk about continuing to advance, right? And a friend of mine said to me, it's not a ladder. It's a jungle gym. And I think we've, we've kind of gone over kind of my trajectory that a jungle gym isn't straight up. Sometimes you have to go to the side to go up or sometimes you even have to take a step back to go up. You know that I took a detour with an architecture major for half of a half of a year. Um, I took a detour to be a COBOL programmer at a consulting firm. You know, sometimes we have to take even a step back and take that five dollar an hour job um, as a receptionist to then hope you can prove yourself and then get pulled back and start managing the tickets for an, an international tennis tournament. Um, that that sometimes we have to trust our gut as to what to do next, not just with career, but even just with our personal lives and our family and our relationships. And that it's, it's not always just about advancing to the next rung, but sometimes we just have to shift gears and go sideways or maybe take a step back so that we can continue to grow and advance. It's not a ladder. It's a jungle gym. I have a great visual of, you know, a crazy jungle gym taking all these turns and stuff. That's right. Thank you for sharing that wisdom with us. Um, Kim Simmons was our guest today. I'm your host, Amanda Pierch Marmalejo, on Celebrating Powerhouse Women. You know that we are live every Friday at 1130 a.m., but you can listen to us wherever you enjoy your podcasts. I listen on iTunes. Kim, where do you listen to podcasts? The same, iTunes. iTunes, and we're available on Spotify, and we would love to connect with you on social media as well. I am on LinkedIn, Amanda Pierch Marmalejo, and so is Kim Sivens. Until next time, this is Celebrating Powerhouse Women. <laughs>